This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And I'm here, as always, with Maxwell Bogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing? I'm doing well, Maxwell. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Who do we have today on the 3D Pod? Max, we got Brent Wright, and Brent Wright is uh, well, kind of a little point of light in my uh, LinkedIn feed. Really, he's a, a prosthetist and orthotist uh, who helps other prosthetists and orthotists. I've been trying to practice his words, but it's not working. <laughs> so, and, You're doing great. He's trying to help. <laughs> how, how would you say it, Brent? What's the proper pronunciation? <laughs> yeah, you had it right on the buddy. Prosthetist okay. and orthotist. Yep. Sounds oh, dirty. Thank you. Uh, so, <laughs> legal, uh, yeah, we say legal in all 50 states. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's, and he's helping other prosthetists and orthotists uh, to go digital, essentially. Uh, he also is uh, uh, a part of East Point Prosthetics, and he's also part of Life Enabled. And Life Enabled is a, uh, a charity that, uh, specifically in Guatemala, is giving people a 3D-printed uh, prosthetics. Uh, and also training others to give and measure people on 3D printed prosthetics. And it's also always really inspiring to see his posts and to see him go by. Brent is also part of Additive America. He's one of the founders of Additive America, which is a, a, a HP MGF uh, service bureau. And for these prosthetics, he uses both FDM and uh, MGF. And at the same time, what they also do is they have their own 3D scanning solution that can uh, help other uh, people do the same thing. Thank you uh, for being you, generally, uh, Brent, and uh, welcome to the 3D Pod. Wow, thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, I look forward to our discussions. First off, uh, tell us tell us a little bit about prosthetist and orthotist, because which one's which and what do they do? Okay, so uh, the way that I usually describe it, and I may be dating myself a little bit because when, I, I, I don't feel that old, but... Uh, you know, a lot of people have seen the movie Forrest Gump. And so I always say Captain Dan wears a prosthesis and Forrest yeah. Gump wears orthoses. So typically a, yeah. uh, a prosthesis is you're replacing something that somebody has lost. So some uh, extremity and then an orthosis is something that you're, you're dealing with uh, their, their whole body, but you're doing some sort of correcting or supporting. Because you're both. Is that normal or is it just like, is, or are people doing, doing one or the other? Or? So it has become more normal for people to do both. In fact, the education here in the U.S. is very much that way where you learn both. It used to be that those disciplines were separated and you could actually have a certification in just one of them. Okay. okay. And, and how do you become uh, yeah, either one or both? So it, it used to be, like my day, I guess, so you'd have to have a college degree and then you would go to a certificate program that's typically associated with another college or university. So for instance, I went to California State, Dominguez Hills, and it's postgraduate, but it's not considered a master's program, at least at that time. So you get the certificate, of, a piece of paper that you took uh, uh, orthotics and prosthetic, or you went through the orthotics and prosthetic program. And then, um, and then you have to serve a residency and each residency is roughly a year per discipline uh, after you finish the school. So all in, you're in to be fully certified, probably three to four years postgraduate. Uh, 
And uh, nowadays, the only option to get into the field as a clinician is a master's program. And there's only a handful of those programs around the United States. Um, but so it's definitely changed. So you have two years of uh, schooling after uh, your bachelor's degree, and then you still serve uh, a one-year or 18-month residency, depending on how you how you break it up. So it's it's a it's a haul to do, um, but it's a, it's definitely a worthwhile field to be in. I really enjoy it. And uh, and and so I've, I did some projects with with specifically this. I, I found actually that that. Yeah, but the reason is it is difficult to do this is because if you do it wrong, you might end up doing a lot more problems than you end up, uh, you know, yeah. you, end up, uh, you, you could affect somebody's back or lots of things like that, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's a great point. Uh, I, I love the kind of collaborative um, energy that goes on within engineers and prosthetists and orthotists, and I really want more of that. You know, one of our greatest fears is somebody that does not know the field or tries to go out and fit somebody, specifically with lower limb prostheses, they go out and fit somebody and something breaks and they weren't really licensed or certified to do those things. And it really gives, specifically as we're trying to push into 3D printing, a bad name, because you can imagine you know, that, that, that can make news very, very quickly and um, and then really cause people to pull back on this whole kind of momentum that we have going with 3D printing in the orthotic and prosthetic field. Yeah, and why is that the momentum there, Wayne? Why is 3D printing for uh, relevant for you guys? So the, the biggest thing with 3D printing is we're able to, uh, and, it's, and it's so cliche, right? It's, uh, complexity is free when you talk about 3D printing, you know, free, <laughs> big quote unquote. But it, it is true. There are things that you can you can do with 3D printing that you cannot do with the way that we traditionally fabricate. And so the way that we traditionally fabricated was using a plaster model or a positive model. And you would either vacuum form a hot piece of plastic over top of that mold or you would do a resin lamination, say with carbon fiber, fiberglass, basalt, you know, your, your composite of choice. And it's really hard to tune that, that material, uh, or it takes somebody very, very skilled to do so. Whereas when you're in 3D printing, you can literally create flexible areas, rigid areas, dimensioned areas, all that in one prosthesis. And ultimately the patient benefits uh, from that, you know, they can have adjustability, lightweight, flexibility, all in the same socket with really no extra cost when you 3D print, specifically in the powder-based fusion uh, applications. And, and what I've heard, like uh, from Scott Summon, who did these fairings, these things as well, is that the, the another problem is that these guys that you typically nearly always have pain or some degree of pain even uh, like if you if you lose like a, a leg or something like that with the socket like phantom in, uh, yeah no no like actual, actual pain on oh, the, the connection when you, point when you, when, yeah when you when you yeah is that typical or or is that yeah poor construction <laughs> <laughs> you know and that's i think that's what it comes down to really is i always say whether you 3d print 
or you traditionally fabricate the socket, you still have to fit the patient. So if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. And there are very well fitting traditionally fabricated sockets as well as poorly fitting traditionally fabricated socket. And the same goes for the 3D printing. So I, I think that's where the collaborative effort really has to, uh, you know, you just have to jump in. Engineers are not, you know, great with uh, fitting the body or organic shapes and that sort of thing. And in the same way, most of the time, prosthetists and orthotists are not good at engineering things or designing things uh, digitally. And so that's where this marriage and communication really can benefit ultimately the patients. I, I was like on a project I, and we tried to try to get these guys to explain why they did certain things and why they made certain choices. And they couldn't tell us why. And it was like really scary. <laughs> we were like just trying to like, how are you doing this? And they were like, well, I just, my experience had taught me kind of thing. It was like, it was like, we couldn't like completely fathom it, you know? It, it is tough. And, but I, you know, that's where I appreciate, you know, people like you, like, Hey, how, how, why are you doing this? The why is very, very important. And we have to be able to communicate that to engineers. And, and that's, what's so exciting really about these uh, new residents and kind of this new generation of clinicians that are coming up is they're taught in school to ask the question why, not as a, uh, a disrespectful thing, like why are you doing that, but why so I can learn and, and make my own uh, learning system moving forward. And, and that's super exciting for me. And I tell you, we have uh, seven of those residents right now within East Point Prosthetics and Orthotics, and I, they are all super smart, rock stars and i just can't wait to see you know where they go because it's just uh, amazing so this this new generation of clinician i believe will complement engineers very very well i have a question specifically on the socket side i keep trying to to do this and trying to get others to think about this but why not use you know, like a 3d or 3d pen and draw directly onto the person's uh you know, place that they're missing the look. I'm not sure the right term. The the stump, yeah, for to be you know insensitive, uh, to make like kind of the perfect fit um, using like PCL, uh, a low temperature material, and then simply create an attachment directly into that. So that way you you don't have you have the perfect fit because it's exactly uh, molded directly onto the person's body. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I've, I've never heard it put that way. And I'd love to talk with you more about that. Because, <laughs> you know, specifically in the developing world, that it's such a big deal, because finding like even casting material and that sort of thing is is very, very difficult. And then also, you know, kind of wasteful as well. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a way, so, so I've never heard it put that way. Uh, so that's a great, I, I definitely want to explore that and talk about <laughs> that. But the, the other part is, especially for lower extremity amputees, you have to simulate weight bearing. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the issues with direct scanning. So a lot of people will direct scan and then make modifications on that scan. What direct scanning does is it really doesn't take into consideration the underlying bony anatomy. And the, and the changes uh, or the pressure areas that you can put. And what happens if you put pressure in a certain area, what happens to that area that's opposite to it or beside it? What happens to that tissue? And so that is where um, 
I think your idea and kind of the, you know, our rudimentary way of your idea is uh, we take a mold of the patient's limb and try to uh, simulate the weight bearing effects. So we get the appropriate shapes. And then to Joris's point, you know, we can actually in that initial um, cast, we can see if there's any pain points and then make adjustments necessary when we go to the, the socket that we deliver. Does that require though a lot of back and forth with the user? Like you have to have them come in three or four times, let's say, to try it on, make sure it fits properly and so forth and so on? So some, it all depends on the amputation. You know, I'd like to say, right. no, you know, we get it right the first time every time. Well, no, no, I, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I tell you what, so I just got back from Guatemala this past Monday. We, we delivered 35 3D printed devices uh, and we fit 100% of those devices and we did not do any test fittings. Hmm. So can it be done? And, and these are not like you're just run of the mill amputation levels and and I mean these are like super complex traumatic amputations some crazy congenital uh you know born with um amputations that are just uh very difficult to fit and we were able to do all do them all with 3d printing and but we were we also planned for you know what can go wrong so for instance we used um the color fab um very assured tpu Mm -hmm. and that allowed us to, I call it a oops factor, right? So it gives us some cushioning and right. protection over some of the bones. We also used multi-jet fusion TPU and did variable latticing with entopology um, to create a foam-like structure that worked very well as well. So it takes, it takes some planning to, to have a, you know, quote-unquote successful fitting but I, I do think it is possible with the technology as long as you are able to think ahead. And, and I think that is really the tipping point between kind of old school prosthetists and these new school um, clinicians is before when you traditionally fabricate, you're able to adjust and do all this stuff on the backside after you fabricate it. And so there's not necessarily a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of thought, put into when you first meet the patient and trying to get that fit right the first time. But now everything is kind of shifting to where you want to get that fit as close as possible the first time. And so how do you do that? Well, you spend the time up front with the patient, making sure that everything fits the way it's supposed to before you uh, make a final or definitive socket. Hmm. I really do think I like the idea, uh, Max's idea, and I think that you can with PCL you can shrink to fit as well, right? So you heat the material yeah. and then it shrinks to fit. So that's it's being done with ski boots, and and uh, I worked on a thing with like shoe soles and stuff for it as well, and it works. So it could actually be an extra kind of liner, giving you more of a uh, more comfort as well. It's a very comfortable material, the, the low TG, but but it's very uh, comfortable material, high very high modulus, and uh, I'm a huge fan. But anyway, sorry. Enough about PCL. <laughs> uh, it sounds awesome. We, we, it sounds like, we it sounds like we need to PCL. work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it sounds like I need to love it too, man. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, there's already, there's already medical grades of it too, so that's why yeah. it's like such an easy one to work with. Yeah, um, yeah. polycarbonate is amazing. Uh, but, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's home it's, compostable. It's really, it, 
Well, yeah, uh-huh. but, and, and it's, it's super comfortable as well. Uh, Use yeah. it for braces and liners and stuff. Anyway, yeah, you can buy it on 3D for makers, I think. So how much are 3D printed prosthetics costing at this point? Like, are, are they achieving the dream of making it a lower cost solution than the traditional method? Or is it, is it offset by like, you have to put it together and all that, you know, the, the human labor hours aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's different. So when we look at, so, and, then you, and then you talk about the two different technologies, right? You've got FDM, which yes, you can drive your costs down, but from, from our testing so far, um, you know, long-term, long when I say long-term, um, you know, it's just not, not there yet. Um, but when you're talking about uh, multi-jet fusion or even SLS, uh, and the be- ability to have the complexity flexible versus um, rigid. Uh, and then we have cyclical data and destructive data on, on that as well. It really is a game changer, but obviously those are more costly than FDM sockets. So with the, with the SLS and multi-jet fusion sockets, you really are, it's a lateral move as far as cost uh, to produce and then eventually cost to the patient. So the way that it works, uh, in the U S is, you know, somebody in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where I'm at charges the exact same amount as Asheville, North Carolina. There's really no discounts, uh, because of the way the insurance system works and that sort of thing. But, you know, some of that is changing. Whereas you've got people with high deductibles and such that may be looking for cash, prices for these prostheses and that's where you may see costs come down but in regards to you know fdm sockets it really comes down to you know how much are you how much material are you going to use so you know we're using for fdm sockets usually somewhere between three quarters of a pound and a pound of material for each socket and we use a clear petg just to make sure that the sockets fit and then it heats Mm -hmm. well and all that stuff and and so you're talking, you know, a material cost of maybe 10 to 20 bucks, uh, if that, depending on whose PETG that you're using. And then, you know, we're also looking into, well, like the stuff from ColorFab. I mean, it's a, a beautiful TPU, that expandable TPU, and you essentially get a two for one ratio. So, you know, you, you may get a two kilogram roll, but it acts like it's four kilograms because your extrusion uh, multiplier is like under 50%. So like a 0.4, I think ours is somewhere between 0.45 and 0.49, which is just mm-hmm. incredible <laughs> when you think <laughs> of that. Um, and then they, so, and then we're working with a couple other filament manufacturers that um, do some pretty cool stuff to PLA um, for more impact resistance and then some fibers added to that. Um, and then we use large nozzles as well. The, um, and then we go, so, so somewhere between a four to five millimeter thickness as far as wall thickness, but we'll do um, four loops of one millimeter to 1.2 millimeters. So it allows you to really get great Z-layer adhesion because you're keeping your thermal mass up there where you, you know, and, and we're getting the speeds up. So literally it is adhering to the, the layer under it very well and still kind right. of in its warm state. And then what printers are you using? So uh, out of America, just we, we've been using some uh, of our kind of homebrew stuff uh, because of the large nozzle sizes. 
and some of the speeds that we're trying to to push and so there wasn't anything really on the market for us that was affordable um, so we kind of ventured into this uh, I don't want to say kicking and screaming but it was just something that nobody was wanting to provide to us so Additive America, we literally used multi-jet fusion parts to build this FDM printer called the OP Pro. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's based off of the Simple, you know, that was uh, Simple yeah. Metal uh, uh, in 2000, what was that, 2011, 2012. Yeah. And it's just got, I mean, these just beefy bars, you know, beautiful metal bent stuff, all US made. Um, and then these multi-jet fusion parts, um, are just incredible. We're using UBIS hot ends with ceramic tips so we can do um, fiber type of things, 90 watt uh, cartridges, so super high flow. And um, mm -hmm. it's it's pretty awesome. And so, and, and the price point is, you know, it's just under $3,000, 20, $29.95, I think. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a great purpose-built machine for the sockets that we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Have you looked at the the, the dies design uh, nozzles or not? Yeah. So um, I have a black belt. I have a bunch of printers, but um, you know, mm -hmm. black belt uh, was big, uh, or they switched over to the dies design nozzles um, when they went direct mm -hmm. drive on their machines. So I have that. And then um, before I started switching over to Ubis, all my stuff was uh, dies designs. They just had a you know, it was a beautiful nozzle. I, I could switch stuff in and out. The the one thing that was lacking for us is uh, the extruder power just mm -hmm. wasn't there for, you know, some of the speeds that we were trying to run. And so um, that's, right. that was, was that, the, you're trying to get as many pro. as possible. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know, with a pro it's pretty high output, no? I don't know. Uh. Uh, I mean, so, when you go, uh, when you're pushing like 1.2 millimeter um, and, you know, you got a, a 1.5 millimeter extrusion width at a, say a 0.6 or 0.8 layer height, it starts, you know, you're just going to have to slow it down so much. So we, that's why we went with the, um, with the UBIS. You've got a longer melt zone and uh, all that stuff where you can really start pushing. And we created our own extruder. It's actually 3D printed as well. Um, Oh. with a gear it's a yeah. geared extruder so oh, it's okay. uh okay. it put it pushes <laughs> a lot so it's it's really mm -hmm. neat okay cool and did you make a bunch of these or what, what did you what did you do with those yeah so um right now we're just kind of fulfilling some of the pre-orders that we've had of people that have heard about it and then once we kind of get the manufacturing stuff down we have all the metal stuff figured out we have the wiring and all that, but now we're, now we're into the point of like, if we really go into production, are we going to, you know, buy wiring harnesses to make it easier to, you know, do for full on production. So we, we have a lot of interest. And I mean, the neat thing about like in the U S you've got about 3000 uh, orthotic and prosthetic facilities nationwide. And you know, so who knows how many will, will want it, but, um, we're starting to see like we just sold one to one of the universities and there's under 10 universities in the United States that does um, has an orthotic and prosthetic program. So the students are going to be working with our stuff. And then what typically happens is, you know, you work with it. And then when you get out in the professional world, uh, you want to use the same thing kind of that you learned on. And, and for the price, you can't beat it. Um, you know, the closest 
the closest thing for that that speed and all the really niceties of that machine you're probably looking at um you know fifteen thousand dollars so you can get five of these for fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> i was just have you been seeing any resistance to the use of 3d printing within the orthotics and industry so to speak <laughs> <laughs> you know it's it's interesting and and that's where i really have to stay positive and and you know i appreciate joris saying that you know a light on their feed you know there was a sense of like it's like me against the world ever trying to get everybody 3d printing and and really that's not the case i mean i was very resistant to 3d printing i thought it was just you know a gimmicky. bunch of hype uh, right. yeah yeah gimmicky you know and you can and you have all those things, especially I think like the like pretty much 2014 to 2016, 17, it really scarred our industry because you had a lot of these people like uh, making these toy prostheses and such and, and, right. and this like beautiful videos and such, but it really never shows the 3D printed device. And you know that these things just ended up in the closet and broken and all that stuff. And so a lot of processes are like, Hey, I don't want anything of that. So my attitude has been, Hey, I'm going to share my journey and, um, and I hope people will come along and I'm going to share video, real video. I'm going to show you, um, you know, the good and the bad, uh, stuff that breaks that sort of thing. So, uh, we're seeing a big softening, I think of that. And, and, and I really just try to keep it lighthearted. Hey, this is what I'm doing. You want to come along for the ride? Let's go. Let's go. I want, you know, I want other people to come along for the ride. And, um, but prosthetists and orthotists, I, I truly believe they're some of the most creative people on the planet for making these one-off custom devices that are different every single time. And I think 3D printing really has a great place for that mm -hmm. for them. Okay. So, I, and then we'll, Oh, yeah, go on. I, so is it, I mean, based off of that, I would say like, is this idea that was promoted at that time period of like, oh, you know, we can have a classroom full of kids, like make a prosthetic for one of their fellow kids. Is that just unrealistic at the end of the day? And that that's what you mean by it's just going to end up in the closet and not useful because, you know, it's kids <laughs> or it's, you know, sure. a, a parent trying their best and everyone means well here. So I don't mean to like, you know, say that, that they're doing something bad or wrong, but is it just that it, it takes a lot of skill and effort to make one of these, to make a prosthetic? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, when you, when you're talking upper extremity stuff, I think there's definitely, st there's definitely room for um, improvement in the mm -hmm. prosthetic and orthotic realm, the, both of them. And there's a, the way that I look at it is there's a reason why people are looking outside of our field for options. So I don't have any ill will or ill feelings towards those people that are actually um, trying to make a difference and parents that are reaching out that are trying to make their, uh, you know, uh, something for their kids or you know, other options. I right. think what it, what it comes down to though, is like a lot of these school things or these kid things, that sort of thing is the interaction with the patient's limb. And you see them, you know, you see these like hard edges, things that don't fit, uh, extreme padding, right. these massive, and, and it really causes more harm than good. So what, what I would love to see, and I understand why it hasn't happened because, 
you know, prosthetists and orthotists, we're knuckleheads, you know, we don't want to listen to uh, some sort of student or something that has a really great idea. And then we just kind of say, nope, we're not going to help you, you do your own thing. And that's the problem. Uh, and that is why some of these groups have just kind of said, hey, we're going to go do our own thing because prosthetists and orthotists are knuckleheads, right. you know, they just, they don't, <laughs> they don't want help. They think they're the best. And that's really, you know, not the case. It's, it's going to take both of us working together um, for the good of the patient. And, um, and, and I, and I do think that's changing somewhat. Um, but, you know, we've got a lot of work to go. And yeah, I think, I think surely like there is a way to make a kind of configurator kind of tool that would give us a, uh, a, a lot of good, like uh, that would do a lot of like helpful work in making it a lot faster and also safer at the same time. And, and to use that kind of automation software as well. I know. Or, or to print a tool. Okay. <laughs> I completely agree. You know, and I think, I think though there, there does need to be as long as the fitting, the fitting, the, like, I don't have any problem with the students doing the arms, the, me the but, mechanism yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. But we do need a prosthetist involved in, okay, let's make the socket. Cause yeah. everyone, a 3D every, pen. there you go. <laughs> I like it. So let's make it happen. You know, I, right. I got, I've got, you know, that, then that's the thing. I don't I love that you say that. I mean, that's stuff that I haven't even thought about or, you know, but I'm, I'm open to it. Hey, if it makes the, it better for patients and makes, access uh worldwide uh better for amputees uh i mean it's a win that's the way yeah, i, I know at it. yeah yeah I, I i think yeah i think there's a lot of i often wonder just in general if there's a, a lot of stuff that you know because people get so focused on their speciality that they're often not looking at something else that might be able to do what they want um without causing more problems and i mean that in general sure. um and so, yeah, it's, uh, that's why I wonder if the, the homebrew type people, the DIYs, are discovering or thinking of things differently because they're just looking at it differently. At the same time, I also get how they're probably making fundamental mistakes that are going to cause problems. And that's part of the fear behind, uh, you know, doing it yourself for something like a prosthetic. Um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and like those adaptive things and that sort of thing, I, I think what's going to be interesting is people are going to be like, Hey, you know what? We, we don't want to do arms anymore. We want to do legs. Well, that's right. what somebody's walking <laughs> on every single day and you, you got to know what you're doing. And, uh, and that's going to be a problem when that happens. I think, yeah. I think, uh, but it's interesting because it is like, because we were talking about, I've read somewhere that it was like just the amputees alone. So that's, that doesn't include people who would have like some kind of malformation or something like that. That would be like something like 10 million people worldwide or something like that, right? If we're looking at people missing a limb, I don't know. That's, I read that once. I don't know if, what, what the real numbers are, but we're talking about a huge amount of people, right? That's right. And I think the World Health Organization says 0.7% of any given population has an amputation. So like for Guatemala alone, where I go is 100,000 people. So that I mean, that, and that's a small little country, yeah. that's 15 million right. people. So you know, whatever uh, the world population is 7 billion times 0.7%. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a big number. Yeah. Is it is there statistic info on legs versus like arms? Uh, it, you know, if one's uh, more common, or is it kind of split? So, so it is very interesting. So, 
legs typically account for like 95% of the amputations. Uh, at least th that's about what it was in school is 95% of all amputations are lower extremity, but some people lose like fingertips and fingers and that sort of thing. And I don't know that mm. those ever make it into that count. Right. Um, but what the interesting stat that gets me every single time is that, so those 5% of people are upper extremity amputees or arm amputees or fingers or what have you, but only 3% of that 5% actually wear a prosthesis. Prosthetic, yeah. So, so it's, it's very interesting where you see all these um, companies really like the, like the do it yourselfers and that sort of thing, really uh, trying to fit the most niche of a niche. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah of a niche. It seems the, the focus is always on the arm and it's like, yeah, what you're, so, well, from what you're saying, that shouldn't be the focus. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's the thing is, yeah. So it, it's a very odd thing, but the, the reason being is it's not regulated. Now, I will say, though, that it's very interesting that there's, um, you know, there's some companies that are very well known. Funded. They've gotten some money oh. funded. Yeah, funded. Thank you. <laughs> funded, uh, you know, where it's some like young person that love to do robotics and, and that sort of thing. And then, boom, I mm -hmm. have a company and I'm making a difference worldwide. Well, uh, these people are selling in states that have licensure. So um, they right. are essentially practicing without a license and it's going to be interesting really this year and maybe next year uh, of what's going to happen because uh, you can get in big, big trouble for practicing without a license, uh, doing some direct to consumer stuff and that sort of thing. And I think it's a big deal and, and it's, and it's a bummer because I think that there is a way to collaborate and I think, um, and I think they're trying to circumvent and creating this, this business around this thing that's well-funded. It's an amazing story, but really it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 really no. it's not. Uh, it's a, uh, it's it not a good, good. story. And um, yeah. So anyway, there you go. What thing, what, what thing is that? Well, just arms. He means in general, like any prosthetic. Well, well there is, there is, well, I mean, so you have the you whole. You don't want to name names. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you have the whole like enable thing, which I love that as far as the university. And um, I've done some talk speaking with um, local universities here, um, Duke, uh, UNC, NC State, UNC Charlotte. And those, those students are amazing. I mean, they, these are some bright, bright young people. And I've seen them even jump into after, after school, jump into companies that do engineering for prosthetic stuff, I think. No. especially when everyone's trying to help someone here like none of this is uh <laughs> well no. and, that's, and that's what's funny like when we do an upper extremity prosthesis in our office and it, uh, we love doing it because you know there there it is a unique opportunity you don't do a ton of them i mean there are some companies that specialize in it but the reality is you may not make any money <laughs> right at it because it's like these, these components are so expensive because it's such a niche thing that there's not a, you know, this huge production um, behind it. And uh, so the, the parts are just, you know, supply and demand. There's not a lot of supply because there's not a lot of demand and you're going to pay a lot of money for it. But I also think that's where 3D printing has a big uh impact on the way that upper extremity prostheses are delivered. For instance, in Guatemala, you know, a, just a basic prosthesis, my material cost is a thousand bucks. Well, um, I just delivered five 
limbs that I 3D printed. And you talk about, you know, I don't want to say cobbling together because it was very interesting, but I used a RAM mounts. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're, they they make mm-hmm. like GPS and tablet holders uh, okay. for like speedboats and aircraft, like things that are really yeah. supposed to hold on. So I use that. I use Rockwest composite um, pieces. And so I'm here, I am creating these prostheses for like sub 300, sub $200. That would be typically like 10, $15,000 prostheses, uh, you know, here in the U S. And so I think there's going to be some, some changes happening just because of what 3d printing does and you don't have to keep stock of of devices and you can create stuff on the fly uh, and i think that's really exciting mm. yeah totally and 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 talk to us a little bit about guatemala i mean i mean so you ended up going there because you knew people that knew a hall that had like a kind of clinic down there and what's it like just the practical side of you know, you got to pack everything up into boxes and flight cases and stuff and then make sure you have everything what's what's that like yeah, so uh, I started that <laughs> clinic in 2006, and so this was obviously before 3D printing or powder-based fusion stuff uh, was happening. So we made stuff to the traditional way. So literally containers of stuff, we have ovens, we have grinders, all that stuff down there so we can traditionally fabricate. The interesting thing about Guatemala and the, specifically the area that we go, the jungle of Guatemala, is nobody wants to be there. I mean, it is hot, it is humid, and uh, and just to give you a perspective of how hot it is, so we when we left, it it got down to like 80 degrees, and people literally are wearing Eskimo jackets outside. They are freezing their tails off. <laughs> it is the funniest thing. I mean, they are. I mean, gloves, everything. <laughs> it's 80 degrees. Okay, no. and I'm I'm sweating like crazy because it's 80 degrees. <laughs> um, so it's hot. It's humid. Um, and a lot of these materials that we use in the first world, just they literally vaporize within just a matter of months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, you, you really have to think differently and use different things than you would hit, say here in the US. Um, so the way that it started, I grew up as a missionary kid in um, Ecuador, South America. Mm-hmm. And my dad is a beautiful country, by the way. <laughs> it is, yeah. it is. Um, my dad's electrical engineer. My mom's a occupational therapist. And, um, mm-hmm. so, you know, I grew up with this kind of worldview of, Hey, you help other people. And mm-hmm. so my dad still does a lot of electrical work. In fact, if you ever go to anywhere in the world that has a mission hospital and you plug something in, he probably had something to do with it. So he does solar, he does, uh, hydro, he does uh, diesel stuff. And then a whole bunch of medical stuff. He's, he's probably the smartest guy I know. But um, he, every time, you know, when they go to sit down at dinner every night that, you know, they go through, oh, tell, tell us about your kids. And, and so they get to my dad and, and he says, well, my dad, uh, my son is prosthetist north. He's, oh, when, when can Brent come? And I said, dad, you, you have got to stop volunteering my services <laughs> <laughs> at all these places. Um, here's the deal that I'll make to you, dad. I will, I will, I will invest my time, talents and, and, and money into one place. Um, and uh, I'll go there. And he, he loves this hospital that's in the jungle of Guatemala. And I said, okay, so 2006, uh, we built that lab down there and then we haven't, you know, really looked back since. And, and that's the, the thing that's neat about life enabled is that, you know, 
like just this past, uh, you know, a week, <laughs> I, I was down in Guatemala. I, this this kiddo, he's almost as tall as me now. Well, mostly because we made him that tall because he's missing both <laughs> legs. Um, but sorry, that was a terrible joke, wasn't it? But, <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> 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 that was pretty good, actually. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, so <laughs> what was funny is uh, I, he was my absolute first patient. I saw him when he was four years old. He's mm -hmm. 18, 19 years old now. And uh, he, he went from literally not being able to be it, let out of the house essentially to now he's going to be going to like school and accounting school and, and all this stuff. He's a motivational speaker. Uh, he rides motorcycles, bicycles, like all this stuff. And uh, it couldn't be done without prostheses and it couldn't be done without consistent care over the years. Right. Right. For uh, as so it grows people, and everything. That's right. So many people think that you deliver a prosthesis and your job is done. And, and that's as far from the truth as you can get it is it has to be a relationship and so um i think that's you know one of the unique things about life enabled and the other unique thing is while we do use some donated components say the metal parts um all the stuff is new so one of the things that we've we've seen is people like stuff that's not handed down Right. You know, they have a more personal thing. So instead of asking for a bunch of donated parts, and, and one of the reasons why we don't do that, and uh, I don't remember the exact date, but remember when that uh, earthquake hit Haiti? Uh, yeah. I think it was 2011, 2012. There was, everything went to Haiti. There was literally no donated parts to have for prosthetics uh, to make prostheses in the whole world. Everything went to Haiti. And at that point, I was like, you know what? we need to have another way. And so we, we have some great relationships with vendors. We don't ask for donations, but we say, Hey, can you help us out? You know, we want you to make a little bit of money, but what we found pay for the parts. You don't have to be waiting on something. So what we've been doing is trying to get our costs down and down and down and down. So we can then provide a all new prosthesis for um, patients. And it's been great. It's been, it's been really neat. So that, how do you how do you fund the organization? Is it is it donation based or is there an endowment or? Yeah, so it's it's all donation based. And and how could people donate if they want to? <laughs> yeah, so uh, lifeenabled.org is a great way to donate. Um, there there's different kind of levels of donation. There's like, hey, if you want to buy a knee for somebody, a foot, I think then there's like a leg. Um, but you can donate right online and, and just know that every single dollar goes to like, we don't have any big overhead, anything, um, where this, this is big monster is just, Hey, it goes to, you know, providing prostheses in the developing world. Uh, but I, all, you know, the other thing that I always say is, you know, sometimes it's not a donation. Sometimes like, you know, Max, you, you said, what about the pen? Or you've got this uh, great idea or what have you. Well, let's talk, you know, yeah. uh, man, if it's a world changing idea, let's, let's do it. Let's make some time and, and figure that out. And I feel a lot of those, um, you know, messages uh, frequently, but I will talk to anybody that thinks that, you know, Hey, what you're doing is not, not great, or I can improve on or whatever, because, there is so much that I, you know, I have yet to learn that other people are in it and they're like, you know, if, even if you just tip it just one way a little bit, man, 
the, the tip could be a massive change worldwide. So while donations are great and, and we need them, absolutely, um, uh, ideas and, and uh, help in that sense are, are just as important. Hey, thank you so much, Brent. Uh, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about what you do. And thank you for, for, for being on the 3D pod. Yeah, my pleasure. This has been great. Oh, likewise. Yeah. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, Max, thank you for being uh, on the 3D pod as well. Yeah, always joyous. It's lovely to, to talk to you and chat and to learn something new. Yeah, me too, dude. I really enjoyed this and I hope uh, the listeners did as well. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, my name is Joris Peels and this is the 3D pod. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.